I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Today we bring you The Red Scare Next Door. We're listening to Which Side Are You On? Performed by Natalie Merchant. Come all you good workers, good news to you I'll tell Of how the good old union has come in here to dwell Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? The Red Scare, often called McCarthyism, went much deeper than what was directed by Wisconsin Senator Joe McCarthy in the 1950s, and had, even as early as the late 1940s, a broad reach into the states. Local scares were often instigated by individuals, many McCarthy's, who would red-bait state and city politics. But this fear of communism in the backyard, like that at the national level, was often cover and distraction for the real conservative agenda busting up the labor unions which had gained strength before and during World War II. Joining us today is Randy Mills, professor of history at Oakland City University and author of numerous articles and books on Indiana and regional history. Oakland City is about 25 miles from Evansville, Indiana, which, it turns out, has a unique place in labor history, being home to what is thought to be the first firing of a university professor for political opinions. During World War II, Evansville was a major center of industrial production, reviving the regional economy after the Great Depression through war production. The Plymouth factory, for example, turned out bullets by the billions, and Evansville produced over 6,000 P-47 Thunderbolt fighter planes. After the war, Evansville's manufacturing base was booming, and the town was dubbed the refrigerator capital of the world. Also enjoying this boom was Evansville College, later the University of Evansville, where enrollment grew from about 400 during the Great Depression to 1,500 in 1946, and the curriculum shifted to serve the local industry, converting human resources, GIs, from war fodder to labor fodder. Our show focuses primarily on the years 1947 and 48, on the firing of philosophy and religion professor George Parker for his association with Progressive Party presidential candidate Henry Wallace, on the making of a labor leader, Charles Wright, head of Local 813 in a deeply conservative and reactionary coal country, on a major strike at the mining equipment plant of the Busiris Erie Company, and on the union-busting energies of business leaders, happy to use the Red Scare to malign recalcitrant workers seeking some measure of their version of the good life. Individuals matter in the making of history. You and I can go along or against. It's hard to go against, especially when so much money and power is allayed against you and can turn your community against you as well. Charles Wright found that out. George Parker found that out. These men chose a side and had to leave. Other men chose sides too, such as Lincoln Hale, the president of Evansville College, Evansville corporate executives Louis Ruthenberg and N.R. Knox, These men, upstanding members of the Evansville business community, were not, of course, run out of town. And now, the Red Scare next door on Interchange on WFHB. Randy Mills, welcome to Interchange. I'm glad to be here. Excited. Good. Um... So, 
1948 can be said to be near the beginning of what we term the McCarthy era, but a quick glance back tells us the accusations of communism, red baiting, had been around since the Russian Revolution, 1917 forward. There's clearly a lot of history between 1917 and 1948. A, a, a stunning amount happens in that brief period. Uh, we can probably say it's a period where America had many opportunities to become a different country. Uh, or one that might not be always struggling against being fair to workers, perhaps, um, minorities, women, etc. One that might not lead to perhaps Donald Trump and the alt-right we have today. Um, you can actually narrate this period or sketch some of it via labor leader Charles Wright. Yes. Um, tell us, if you can, a little bit about the politics, economics, demographics of southwest Indiana via the example of Charles Wright. Uh, Southwest Indiana, and, and this is a surprise, I think, to a lot of people, uh, is uh, historically has been very heavily unionized because of manufacturing in the coal mines. Mm. And with unions came a, uh, I, I call it a poor man's college. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the culture of unionism is one of, of uh, community, of of working together with a number of different kinds of people. Um, and so you have in a, in a conservative rural area among working class people, uh, a kind of an education that you wouldn't get without that, where they, they're exposed to a wider world and, uh, uh, accepting more different kinds of minorities and so forth. Now, not always practiced, but because of the, uh, strong, uh, unionism in Southwest Indiana, uh, you you had that, uh, I think, more openness to progressive thought. Uh, Charles Wright uh, came from a family of coal miners, uh, and, and these are very rural uh, kind of red state, today we'd call them red state people. Mm -hmm. and, and it's sometimes breathtaking. We have the uh, second oldest uh, Labor Day uh, celebration in the country in southwest Indiana, mm. and we have speakers that come from universities from out east, and they're stunned to see all these people that would look very red state, uh, very knowledgeable about progressive kinds of things. Mm. Uh, so Charles Wright was a part of that, and that came through the coal mining unions and uh, the horrendous battle to organize. Uh, that really set people – it was a lesson in itself, too, of uh, needing – basic kinds of things to live and not getting it and the unions providing that. And all of that had to be fought for. And there was blood on the ground. During the 1920s and 30s, the Indiana militia was called out three times by the governor to put down uh, union uh, strikes and so forth and, mm. and violence uh, during that time. So these people like Charles Wright, who lived with that with their parents and seen starvation and seen the advantage of unionizing, were, were pretty hardcore. Charles Wright got involved in United Electrical Workers in Evansville, Indiana. Uh, there he came under the influence of a, a famous union organizer who's uh, unfortunately been pretty forgotten today, a fellow by the name of William Sentner. Uh, Sentner came from the St. Louis area. I believe he's from New York originally. Um, and he came in and he organized the United Electrical Workers and uh, worked with other unions there in uh, Evansville. Wright eventually was elected to the assembly and was the head of the United Elect Electrical Workers in Evansville, Indiana, uh, which, which was the largest union in, in the city. So there was a lot of power, a lot of progressivism there mm. uh, in the 1930s and 1940s. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Yeah, Charles. Charles Wright. Then uh, I think uh, you say he is a sort of a, uh, a bright kid who uh, fared well in the Indiana yes. basketball yes, world. Yes, yes. As normal, a normal kid. Yes, we'd, we'd he say was a maybe. basketball star in Gibson mm-hmm. County. Um, he was an all-American uh, uh, kind of fellow, hardworking, mm-hmm. uh, very persuasive. I understand from people that I've interviewed that, that knew him. But yes, he would have been uh, the ultimate in the all-American, hardworking mm-hmm. kind of person with with the caveat in southwest Indiana that he was completely dedicated to unions. <laughs> right, right. So he got a job out of high school at Sunbeam, is that right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, manufacturing. Okay, uh, and that was actually a, a pretty good thing. He got out of the coal mining world. Yeah, or? yes, yes. His, uh, that particular Is culture. that in Evansville uh, too? Or is yes, that, that yeah. was in Evansville. So uh, Evansville turns out to be a, a, a hugely industrial yes. area, right? World War II changed Evansville completely, probably more than any other city in the country. Hmm. And... Uh, uh, what they had, uh, Cervell, which made refrigerators um, and other industries, all went into the, the war effort. They built tanks there. They built uh, airplanes there. Mm. They made uh, almost all the forty five caliber ammunition. Uh, Randy, was this bef- – did Cervell come there in order to make munitions? Or no, no, they no. Already they, there they were there in the 30s. Refrigerator so, so all of these or? companies mm-hmm. are going over to wartime. Gotcha. After gotcha. the war – then they went back to their their okay. old production. And Cervell, I read, was serving electricity it was part of their slogan. They made into their name. This was the uh, National Electric Products Company. I think. Yes. Uh, interesting. Right. Serve, serving electricity. We're living in a country that's the finest place on earth, but some folks don't appreciate this land. You're listening to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our guest is historian Randy Mills, and our show is The Red Scare Next Door, about red baiting and union busting, often simply synonymous terms, in Evansville, Indiana, in the late 1940s. They're figuring out just how we gave our secrets all away, and Congress has appointed a committee, so they said... To find out who's American and who's a low-down red. This, uh, this is a, um, a pretty a, a serious industrial area, so it's not a surprise that it does have this, this union um, groundwork, mm-hmm. right, this foundation of unionism. And United Electrical Workers were the most radical in UE, the country. Yeah. Yes, the UE, out of Pittsburgh. Why were they so radical? They had union, or they had communist organizers, mm. uh, and that wasn't unusual, uh, uh, Lewis, John L. Lewis in the coal fields, mm-hmm. he'd use anybody and then he'd hang them out to dry. It's kind of a sad story about how he used uh, uh, communist uh, organizers because they were good at it. Mm-hmm. They were dedicated. They die for the cause mm-hmm. and uh, they were just good at it. And uh, you saw the same in the, in the automotive industry. And that's the, the first thing that Truman went after to try to uh, outdo the Republicans with being uh, non-communistic mm-hmm. during that time. Mm-hmm. But yes, the, the U of E and William Sentner was a communist organizer himself. Okay. And the, the uh, this is, um, is this the local 813 then is yeah, U, yes. U of E? Yes. Mm-hmm. In that there, but it's a, it's a national right, right. Uh, union. Right. So the U, UE there was their local 813. Mm-hmm. And this is what Char- uh, Charles Wright becomes head of at yes, the time. Yes. Till about what, 1946 or eight? Uh, in 1948, I think he was elected to the assembly in 45 or 47, mm-hmm. um, when the uh, congressional hearing came to Evansville. Mm. And I think that was the first time the con- uh, uh, congressional hearing ever met outside of Washington, D.C. But there was a very conservative Republican representative named Mitchell, I think Ed- Edward Mitchell, who who brought them in 
And the trial was to investigate communism in Evansville. Mm -hmm. Republicans using uh, the fear of communism to destroy union, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, Charles Wright was uh, in uh, Princeton, where he was from, to drive. He'd drive down to Evansville. And there was an editorial in the Princeton paper that said that uh, Charles Wright was uh, working for the communists and for the Russians. And uh, if anything happened to him, it wouldn't be a bad idea. He fled town. He went from the pinnacle to the depths of escaping, and he went into hiding, uh, and and his family uh, basically went into hiding for the rest of the time. Uh, a colleague of mine did interview his son, and they were still, uh, and this has been recently, mm. they were fearful to talk because they lived through that. Yes, oh yes, but but you know they saw that as kids. Yeah. Now uh, Charles Wright told the son. He said. Uh, the, the FBI would be there and periodically ch- uh, checked out on what he was doing and he'd go bring him coffee and stuff. And, <laughs> and it was kind of a, I guess everybody needed to justify their jobs at that point in time. But <laughs> all right. So, uh, so at, at this point, then, um, there's, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Let's find a year that we can walk into here then. So this has been going on. Charles Wright is, uh, is successful as a union organizer, uh, kind of a protege at the time to William Sentner. Who came down from St. Louis for, from organizing UE there as well? Yes, he organized in in uh, several cities, including in Iowa and St. Louis. Always on the move. William Always Center. on the move. Right. Yes. Okay. So, and he was a communist. He was a card carrying yes, communist, yes. as they say. Uh, Charles Wright never, uh, as far as you know, uh, became a communist or, or or pledged allegiance yes, to the even, communist even party. Even though that was used against him. He, uh, as you say, though, in your your articles, he towed the party line generally. Though yes, he, he, yes. he said what Sentner said frequently. Yes. And it was interesting to hear him speak because that rhetoric was always there. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. could spot it, uh, the dog whistle, I guess, from the progressive side. So. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, so, so what's the problem with communism in this period? Uh, when we talk about red baiting and we talk about the scare and there's, there's an American communist party that happens uh, somewhere in here, right? Where we move, a, uh, try to move away from Russia or Stalinism or, or all yes. these things. So what's, what's the problem with communism for people? Why are people afraid of communism? Uh, if you go back to the 1930s when, with the Wagner Act and we started seeing uh, uh, labor able to organize, um, you see uh, the communists as a part of that. And in the, in the 30s, uh, you had intellectuals and union people that liked them because we were all working, they were all working for the same thing. Mm-hmm. And then during World War II, they were our ally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I guess they were they were in for sure nobody was going after them mm-hmm. uh i think the thing that that drove the initial red scare here in, in the 40s and leading to the 50s with the mccarthy era that we're general public's more familiar with mm-hmm. was the republican party trying to crawl back out of the devastation of the new deal mm. i mean they just got wiped out in election after election after election by the time truman came along and, and he was vulnerable to this and the 46 off-year election uh um, Roosevelt dying in 45, Truman taking over. You had the 46 off-year election. The, the Republicans, for the first time, took control of Congress. They mm-hmm. won 55 seats. Mm-hmm. There was a, you'd call it a red wave today, mm-hmm. I suppose. <laughs> and they set about the Taft-Hartley Act that came out in 47, uh, went after uh, right. unions and went after communism in unions. Right. The Republicans had found a, a not a hammer, but they had found a big, big club. Yeah, the Russians had not gotten out of Europe, Eastern Europe, like they had said. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, uh, Iron Curtain speech, mm-hmm. Winston 46, Churchill, sure. yes, mm-hmm. in St. Mm-hmm. Louis. Uh, Fullerton. 
Uh, yes, yes. Right. I it, just know I had a friend who went to school. Okay, there. at the school. <laughs> so, yes, right. yes. Okay. And people forget that it was right. here in the Midwest. Right, where right. that we at a very labor, uh, powerful labor state, mm-hmm. too, in the St. Louis area at that time. Mm-hmm. And so the Republicans got the club and they swung it hard. Mm-hmm. And Truman was vulnerable. By 48, he had a, uh, somebody who's running as a progressive going to take, uh, like a Bernie Sanders kind right. of guy. Henry Wallace. Is going to take the votes. You had the Dixiecrats that broke off all the— Strom Thurmond. Yeah, there was no way he was going to win that, baby. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. he started—so not only did you have the Republicans coming after unions, but you had the Democrats and, and the ones that wanted to preserve the election going after radical unions right. like the U.E., UE was radical and things like AFL were conservative yes, as yes. far as that goes. Relatively speaking, right, right, yes. right. You could work with them. Yes, right? yes. <laughs> they'd, they'd side with the mm-hmm. bosses more right. often. But, but they, would, they, would, uh, they would use the, the communist organizers. Mm-hmm. They, they were more practical, I suppose. Okay. <laughs> the pragmatic Americans. Yes. Bobble. Bobble. Joe, Bobble. come here a minute. Bobble. I got a red Bobble. hot tip Bobble. for you, Joe. It's time for a break. This is Get That Communist, Joe, by the Cavaliers. When we return, more on how the fear of communism translates to the fear of labor power for business leaders. Stay with us. He's filling my gal with propaganda And I'm scared she will meander Don't want to take a chance that he'll land her Get that communist Joe He's the most revolting character And the fellas hate him so But with the girls this character Is a comrade Romeo Since my love he's sabotaging and the lobby has been dodging give him what he deserves jailhouse lodging get that communist joe Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our guest is historian Randy Mills, and our show is The Red Scare Next Door. In this segment, we'll discover a little something about a forgotten strike at the Evansville, Indiana, Bucyrus Erie Mining Equipment Plant that took place in September of 1948, where Indiana's Republican governor sent 140 state troopers to, quote, unquote, keep the peace. Get that communist go. So there's a lot there, obviously. The the idea of um, using the Red Scare or using communism as really, a, 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 I guess, a groundswell or a grassroots uh, a agenda against uh, unions, against labor, you know, is, is, is one of the things that I think gets lost always when we narrate communism and the Cold War. Labor gets lost in the larger story for most people, I think. It becomes it becomes the good and evil of red versus white or, you know, America yes. versus Russia and commies versus true blue Americans, uh, Captain America, you know, fighting for, for good. But this is a labor battle at at its core. Yes. Right. Abs- it's, it's a labor, but communism is useful against labor. Not only did the Republicans see a chance 
to to bring down the Republican Party or at least be competitive with them, they saw a chance to bring down labor. Labor. And labor is one of the legs of the Democratic Party. Right. So it goes together. Right. Uh, historians believe, uh, look at Truman as being the, the, the sad part of the story mm. because he was perhaps too practical mm-hmm. of being an American. I think this is where the Democrat Party started losing their right. their more a liberal progressive side. Even a moral center, you might say. Yes, I'm, I would say so, yes. Yeah, yeah. If you, if you look at the the philosophy of labor right. and working class and right. that sort of thing. Yeah, and Truman is, uh, at this point, uh, has uh, instigated a loyalty oath. Yes, uh, Which he is did. important to, mm-hmm. to its executive order something. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it's, it is pretty, uh, pretty sad period in, in, in our history, I think. Um, and of course, the Republicans used those oaths. They, they took the things right. Truman did. <laughs> And then, well, that's the sad part, right? Like yes. you're like, oh, this reminds me of George W. Bush, but it's Harry Truman. Uh, you know these loyalty oaths that you know you have to take to get into any sort of crowd event for a Republican, you know, national thing. It's interesting about uh, Evansville because it's a very rural area. Mm-hmm. Um, that the populace and the initial settlers were upland Southerners mm-hmm. and and libertarians and, and Jacksonian Democrats, mm-hmm. which back then was the government governs least governs best independents right. and and that sort of thing. They really took the unions. Mm-hmm. They 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 saw it for what it was that it was uh, for fairness, redistributing the wealth, making sure opportunities were there. And it's so ironic that uh, the battering ram of, of communism was able to break and destroy that understanding mm. so powerfully that the fear of that was greater than the, than the joy of, and, and seeing the rational argument about, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the working class. What is the commie at the time, though? And this, like the, one of the things that I just don't ever understand is how we paint the communist. You know, I, I, I can be afraid of Stalin, of course. I mean, you can read plenty about the Soviets, uh, uh, St- Stalin in particular, uh, and and pogroms and and murder, nonstop killing. <laughs> like you can read these things and say, okay, okay, I don't want to be a Stalinist uh, generally, or I don't want to take think this is a good way to organize the life. But how? What was a communist? to someone in Ev- Evansville. What were they doing? What was wrong? It's interesting when you look at, at the uh, primary sources of interviews about mm-hmm. this time and some of the big strikes in 48 that we're probably going to get mm-hmm. to that, mm-hmm. that really brought it all to a head. Uh, most of the workers didn't care. Mm-hmm. And and I, I have talked to coal mining and through interviews that they would call themselves socialist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you got to remember that this country never had a, uh, a trade union mm-hmm. like European nations. Mm-hmm. And you also have to remember that Southwest Indiana was settled by uh, German Americans who brought that understanding with them. And Evansville and in in that area is, is very German American. Mm-hmm. So uh, there wasn't much of a step for them to get it and, and, and decide within that uh, uh, spectrum of uh, radical communism and, and some kind of, of, of socialism and even maybe more to the center mm-hmm. uh, to see where we're all going to get together. We're all after the same thing. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a fear there of that thing. It was just uh, one option. Right. But I think the Republicans, with what was going on on the world level, and, uh, you know, and Stalin was a bad idea. Sure, I don't think there's sure. any getting around that. Yeah, of course. Uh, but uh, uh, they just used that fear so effectively. And, and, and those that perhaps didn't believe it was all that bad would repeat it. You got an echo chamber, much like it got going on today, right, right. where you, you get people saying that stuff. You, you think, well, they know better than that. Right. But they see how effective it is. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. winning sure. in an election yeah. 
That's all it, that matters. Yes, and that's why Truman did what he did and why the Republicans did what mm. they did and mm-hmm. so forth. We're living in a country that's the finest place on earth, but some folks don't appreciate this land. You're listening to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our guest is historian Randy Mills, and our show is The Red Scare Next Door, about red baiting and union busting, often simply synonymous terms, in Evansville, Indiana, in the late 1940s. They're figuring out just how we gave our secrets all away, and Congress has appointed a committee, so they said, to find out who's American and who's a low-down red. The, the issue there, which is, again, interesting, is that um, the echo chamber is a part of how primarily business leaders manipulate or business leaders are a part of the media environment as well. Generally, at least in this period, in this era, well, for the most part, but here uh, there's a newspaper involved, the Evansville Courier, uh, who is basically towing the the Republican mm-hmm. conservative You line. also had the Evansville Press. Oh, okay. And like most towns, you had a Democrat paper. Okay. A Democrat, I, you had a Republican. All right. Were there, um, did they have a particular <clears throat> stance on unions that was different than the Courier? Did, I, didn't, I don't yeah, recall. Yes, the press. That's why you don't see the press in that literature okay. as much because okay. they're, they're more supportive of that particular okay. line. Okay. Uh, you mentioned uh, business. Mm-hmm. Not only was Evansville strongly union, but you had some very powerful manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were players on a, on a national scale. Uh, Louis Ruthenberg comes to mind, who mm-hmm. uh, was later on the uh, uh, Federal Reserve Board mm-hmm. out of St. Louis um, and, and moved in here and was the head of Surveil. Uh, he, like so many of these business leaders, were also uh, had a strong ideology uh, I, I don't know if it's fair to say Republican ideology, but but I'll call it that. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, was very fearful of unions and anything that seemed to be socialistic, and uh, was had a lot of money, had a lot of power, and was very good at uh, setting up a system. Uh, many historians would say he set the blueprint for breaking unions, mm. the the breaking of the of the United Electrical Workers, the most powerful radical union in the country, and it was broken in many different towns. Mm-hmm. Uh, it played out in different places. Uh, he set the blueprint, mm. uh, and it's. Still and being, Ruthenberg still being was the today. what the uh, president or executive officer for Cervell, yes. right? And and there was another fellow that came in with Cyrus Erie. Uh, Knox, Knox, in our Knox, and they kind of uh, work together on that. And Busiris is uh, is is, I guess you know. I was going to say it seemed like it should be well known as a place of a strike, but I went on the Wikipedia today, and it was not mentioned. In Isn't the that interesting? Busiris, yes. uh, yeah, Erie Page, nor Indiana it doesn't show up in there. So uh, that was pretty fascinating to me. Uh, but this is a pretty, uh, pretty serious strike, right? This is, yes. I mean, this required, uh, the governor sent in troops or sent in police, state troopers, uh, National Guard at the ready, at the ready, I think. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the strike. That strike was a, was a winner take all strike. Mm. And, uh, the U of E, uh, let me ask first what Bucyrus Erie is <laughs> as a, as a business. Um, they made, uh, heavy equipment. Yeah. Uh, and, and they were also in the nuclear, uh, mm. uh, industry as well. Okay. Uh, so, uh, uh, coal mining shovels and, and equipment and things of, of that nature, which okay. was Southwest Indiana was a, okay. was a 
good deal for them mm-hmm. there. Now, let me, let me, I'm going to roll back a little bit here too and, and ask to be specific about two things that we've already mentioned a couple of times and you're about to go into with this particular strike. Uh, but one was uh, the 1935 Wagner Act. So this is a period where all of a sudden this kind of act can be implemented. This is a, a pro-union act. So there's, this is America that is, is for labor. Yes. For organizing, for people being able to have the power of you couldn't of keep them out of the shop floor. You couldn't. They you they had to be allowed to, to give votes. Now, Ruthenberg had his own union, and and that was one of the of the techniques that were used was used in the coal mines too mm. to bring in a parental union and to pay a little higher wages, long enough to get the the the. Well, I guess the regular union out, and then oftentimes the wages would go down. Mm. But but you had that going on as well. You had like a faux union. Yes, yes, I suppose. I, I don't know if that's fair to say, but yes, I would. Sounds I would, like I it. Would sound, yes, it does. <laughs> okay. uh, and and not only that, but the keeping picket lines. Mm-hmm. That's the key right. because picket lines allow you to really put the squeeze on the production mm-hmm. and bring them to the table. Mm. And that's where the, the war is. That's where the, right. the violence and the, and the physical and the guts it takes to walk right. a picket line. You know, we've forgotten that. We don't see them anymore. Right. Right. Uh, I have a friend who was a, a organized picket lines during the bitter coal mining strike of 1978 where people died. Hmm. And uh, Indiana, southeast Indiana, was, was the heart of that. And uh, there was a picket line at the Evansville Airport here uh, a couple of three years ago. And uh, security came up. And said, you can't do that. Well, my friend was there and he said, yes, they can't. He knew all the mm-hmm. rules and laws. And so uh, my friend said, you better check on that. So he did. And he said, yeah, I guess you can keep, but you got to keep so many feet away. Nobody knows. Even the picketers didn't know. Mm-hmm. It's a lost, it's a lost thing. It's mm-hmm. gone. And I think with that, that was evoked in the 78 strike, mm-hmm. which is pretty much the end of, of the coal mines. Mm-hmm. If you want to look mm-hmm. back and uh, look at it that way. Mm-hmm. But, okay. But anyway, the Wagner Act allowed for that and it gave them teeth. It's time for another break. This is Woody Guthrie with You Gotta Go Down and Join the Union. Stay with us for more on The Red Scare Next Door when Interchange returns. You've gotta join that one big union. You've gotta join it by yourself. Everybody here will join it with you. You've gotta join the one big union by yourself. If that road gets rough and rocky, if the hills get steep and high, we will sing as we go marching, and we'll win one big union by and by. Brothers gotta join that one big union, brothers gotta join it by himself, everybody here will join it with him. Brothers gotta join the one big union by himself. Sisters gotta join that one big union. Sisters gotta join it by herself. Everybody here will join in with her. Sister got to join the one big Welcome back. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show today is The Red Scare Next Door, and our guest is Randy Mills, historian at Oakland City University near Evansville, Indiana. 
In this segment, we'll talk about the Wagner Act of 1935, which cleared the way for union organizing and which was reviled by American business interests. But the growing power of unions was undermined in 1947 by the Taft-Hartley Act, which, among other things, leveraged the Red Scare, requiring union leaders to file affidavits with the Department of Labor, declaring they were not supporters of the Communist Party. The U.S. Supreme Court declared this provision unconstitutional in 1965. So the Wagner Act is a real thing. It happens. We have an America that, that, as you say, had given labor organizing teeth. And then... We have the 1947, I believe, yes. Taft Yes, after Hartley. the 46th congressional group came in. Okay, so this is where, as you say, FDR dies, Truman takes over, the Congress turns over to Republican, and an act is put into place that pretty much negates or uh, unteaths. Yes. <laughs> so. Now, in fairness, there had been some very, very bitter strikes, post-World War II strikes. Uh, labor had been nice and not st- struck oftentimes. Uh, and, and the wages had not gone, gone up. When they tried to get those, uh, management balked. And so you had these really uh, bitter strikes and, and Truman was stuck with dealing with that. Mm. So the public had mixed feelings on that. Mm. And, and that Congress took advantage of that. Mm. Uh, it also, uh, limited pickets. If it was evoked, I think they could get rid of pickets. If it was like a, an industry deemed, uh, necessary to run the country. The Taft-Hartley Act? Yes, that's what you had in the, in the 78 strike when they did it oh, against okay. the coal mines. Okay. And this also required a, an anti-communist pledge, is that yes, right? Yes, it did. To yes. be to actually be in a union? You had, or the well, union, they, to, they for were, a union to be they, allowed? They were afraid. They saw all those, the, the, the communists, and, and there weren't ever very many communists. No, no they got 100,000. Is uh, that right? Or yeah, is that just communists in general? Yeah, probably in general, but much smaller. <laughs> so yeah, in the it unions. must be tiny. Um, and uh, mostly organizers, probably all of them organizers. Mm-hmm. So that, that by putting it in there, you were giving business people a tool. I think personally, I think that's what that was. It wasn't done because they feared them there. They, they were, they were getting ready to do the fight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, okay. So in 12 years time, you have a shift and here is actually one example of uh, how things begin to unravel for labor yes. in this country. In 1948, there's a strike in Evansville, the Busiris Erie strike. Uh, the players here, as you said already, are Louis Ruthenberg of Servel, which was a different company, but he was a, yeah, a prime no- mover. And Knox, who worked with him, who and, was uh, RN or NR Knox, yeah, yes. uh, who was uh, you know a compatriot in in the business community, mm-hmm. and, and they're at Busiris Erie, and, and he's at Busiris Erie. So uh, here is uh, the strike, and the strike, as you say, is winner take all. And what happens? It gets it gets broken, and one of the Sad things in labor history, and maybe it's just a thing, is the, uh, what did they call it? Uh, robbing, if there's another word, where they would, another union would come in. Mm-hmm. And uh, that happened in this case, mm. where another union came in, a strong union, not as radical, right. more uh, tolerable, I guess, for the, for the business people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think uh, that was the AFL, you, I think it's in your article. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Some version of it. Some version of it. And uh, uh, still strong today. Mm-hmm. And they came in and uh, and uh, uh, 
that was the end of UE, UE in terms of them having the kind of power they needed and solidarity mm-hmm. to keep that strike going. So what what were, what were they wanting? Simply, I don't I don't recall reading what the terms of the strike were. What what was going I suspect there? because we're looking at still this post war stuff. These mm-hmm. people just hadn't had raises, okay, and benefits and 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 nothing uh, particularly surprising there. I would mention two other heroes of labor sure. during this time. Sidney Berger and his wife, Sadie, they were uh, from New York. He was a lawyer, and uh, uh, they were advocates for uh, for the union and for uh, uh, the working class, and I, he was the y- lawyer that they went to when the congressional hearings came to town and all these people went on trial. Mm. Uh, and uh, she was uh, had to was called before the, the, the uh, congressional hearing as well. They were trying to get to him by going through to her. That's what broke William Sentner, by the way. His wife was threatened with deportation. Oh. Uh, her family were Southern Illinois coal miners from Eastern Europe. Hmm. And uh, that went all the way to the Supreme Court. But that's the kind of thing that they were doing to break the union, mm-hmm. to, to get the people, find their vulnerabilities and go after them. Hmm. And then all of them being accused, of course, of being communist. communist. Now, the interesting thing about Sidney Berger is today there's a Sidney and Sadie Berger uh, uh special award for people in civil rights mm-hmm. that's they're recognized for that work mm. so all of that's been forgotten and they're okay that that eventually <laughs> they stayed and, and they and they persevered and they, they were able to get to the other mm. side we're living in a country that's the finest place on earth but some folks don't appreciate this land you're listening to interchange i'm doug storm our guest is historian randy mills and our show is the red scare next door about red baiting and union busting, often simply synonymous terms, in Evansville, Indiana, in the late 1940s. They're figuring out just how we gave our secrets all away, and Congress has appointed a committee, so they said, to find out who's American and who's a low-down red. In Evansville, there's also a college. Uh, outside of all this industry, there's a college that had sort of grown with the, uh, th- with the industry that came along, it was a fairly small college. Industry comes and all of a sudden there are f- 10 times the students that are there in the first place, right? So this yes. is a burgeoning college. It's the veterans coming back. The GI Bill brings yes. in yes. a lot of new students. And it's also the, uh, the opportunity with all this manufacturing that's going mm-hmm. back now to producing refrigerators and okay. cars. Moving Chrysler from the war and then back yes, back yes. into uh, domestic pr- yes, production. Yes. So things were booming okay. and they were a part of that. They they weren't prepared for that. They needed new buildings. They had like one building. Yes, yes. <laughs> right. And they wanted an engineering building. Mm. And uh, Mr. Uh, Ruthenberg helped right. them out on that. Yeah. So I think you mentioned there's a, a development of a, the obviously the board of trustees become all business leaders of the town. Yes. Yes. Right? Um, so this is a very conservative town, a conservative college, but they hire a liberal from the east. Yes. Yes. And if you remember the uh, the president uh, Lincoln Howe mm-hmm. was a Yale graduate. Awesome. So was this fellow George Parker. So I suspect. Mm. There, there was some. Maybe he liked the fact he was right, from Yale. I right. don't know, but yes, he was. He was from the East. He was a, a liberal, uh, progressive in his thinking. He and his young wife, and they came to Evansville, and he taught in the religion and philosophy department. This is forty six. They come. Yes, uh, yes, mm-hmm, yes. Mm-hmm. Religion and philosophy. Yes. Okay. So he's he's there, a, a fresh face, and people love him. Yes. So, yes. He's yeah. very very popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he was. Uh, a breath of fresh air, I suppose, to the kind of maybe some of the more conservative <laughs> maybe. Uh, teachers at the time. 
So, uh, so tell us a little bit about what happens with George Parker. George Parker is a successful uh, teacher. Uh, well, we've we've left out okay, the part of the sure. story that we need to look at. Mm-hmm. So poor old Harry Truman. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> he's he's maybe betraying some of his ideas. Maybe he's being practical, and he's got the Dixiecrats who are pulling out, mm-hmm. and uh, they go with Strom Thurmond. Uh, but there's another fellow. There's a progressive by the name of, of Henry Wallace, mm-hmm. who was a vice president under Roosevelt, uh, still carrying that progressive idea. The Soviets are our friends. Um, uh, redistribu- redistribution of wealth, uh, all all those kinds of things. The the, the, the flag, maybe even carrying the more of the flag than Roosevelt. There was always this discussion among historians whether Roosevelt meant the dual, New Deal to last or just to get us going again so we could get back to older things. Mm-hmm. But Wallace was yes, let's take the New Deal and keep going with it, much like Lyndon Johnson picked that up later. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, uh, Wallace caught the imagination of a lot of young people, a lot of intellectuals mm-hmm. in universities and, of course, unions, especially the radical unions. So uh, uh, this fellow, George Parker, becomes a, uh, uh, a leader of the uh, elect Wallace campaign mm-hmm. in Vandenberg County, in mm-hmm. Evansville. And uh, Wallace comes to town to speak. Uh, and everywhere he went, many places, there was uh, disturbances. Mm-hmm. There was a disturbance before he came here down in North Carolina. In the, and that's textile, and the unions were trying to get there. So there was a lot of, 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 uh, of uh, tension there. Mm-hmm. So uh, he walks in on this and uh, gives a speech at the Coliseum where uh, George Parker introduces him as the chairman of the elect Mm-hmm. Henry Wallace. This is eight, uh, 1948, uh, April sometime? Yes. Something like that. Yes, April, that April sounds 19- like I don't have that in front of yeah, me. Yeah, that's all right. 1948. Uh, so this is a, a few months before the Busiris strike, uh, but uh, Wallace comes to town. There's lots of, again, it's a lot of conservative, anti-communist rhetoric already yes. happening in town. Yes, but it's the conservative unions mm. that really tip the scale. Um, so you've, so you've got, uh, the, the Republicans themselves, but you've also got these, these, uh, uh, union people that are carrying out, uh, uh, Truman's dictates. Uh, and so all of that's happening and there's picketing at this meeting. Uh, it's called a riot. I'm not sure if it qualifies for a riot, but inside the Coliseum, you had the speech going on and then outside you had pushing and shoving and windows being broken and that sort of thing. And Wallace did in his speech refer to that as the disruptiveness of that and how an American that was. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it was, uh, it was a trying time. That event made national international news, Mm. uh, uh, just, just that particular thing. And then later, of course, uh, Parker was fired for that. Um, I think he was probably in the clear until the business, the people on the board of trustees and the business people, and there was conservative development even on campus. Mm-hmm. Some of the veterans uh, got together and uh, wanted something done about it, right. and eventually they fired him. It was a, a joke uh, set around there on campus that Ruthenberg said that the engineering building, they'd be making his refrigerators right. there if they right. didn't fire Parker. Yes. I don't know if that actually <laughs> happened or not. Apocryphal. It's time for our final break. This is Jefferson and Liberty, performed by Pete Seeger. Robbie Lieberman, author of My Song is My Weapon, writes that songs like Jefferson and Liberty were used to express the idea that communism is 20th century Americanism. 
political figures like Jefferson became folk heroes, and Jefferson's presidential campaign was compared to Henry Wallace's as a quest to protect the rights of common people. Stay with us for more on the Red Scare next door on Interchange. No lordling here with gorging jaws Shall wring from industry the food Nor fiery bigots, holy laws Lay waste our field and streets with blood Rejoice, Columbia sons, rejoice To tyrants never bend the knee Join with heart and soul and voice For Jefferson and liberty The gloomy night before us flies, its reign of terror now is o'er, its gags, inquisitors, and spies, its herds of harpies are no more. Rejoice, Columbia's sons, rejoice to tyrants, never bend the knee, join with heart and soul and voice for Jefferson and liberty. Strangers from a thousand shores compelled by tyranny. Welcome back to Interchange. In our final segment of The Red Scare Next Door with historian Randy Mills, we discuss the tenor of the times. Mills points to Dr. Baby and Dr. Sex, Spock and Kinsey, as expressions of permissiveness and a waning of moral certainty. Clearly, an era ripe for a useful scapegoat cloaked in red. So that you, you point out that it, it's uh, Ruthenberger sort of strong arms um, Lincoln Hale was it yes or, yes yeah. um, to fire Parker and uh, what happens is that Parker pretty much immediately gets on the horn to the AAUP yes yes which is the American Association of University Professors yes. they're they're. Milk, milk toast union, I right, suppose. Right. Uh, yes, Academics, right. you can imagine. Well, the, yes. Well, they have particular rules that to be accredited, yes, a university has, or university has to follow these particular rules this particular way. And if you don't, then you lose your accreditation, basically. Yes. That's their tooth, I suppose, right? Yes. Uh, so he says, I've been fired and it's, and there's no due process, nothing there. I shouldn't have been fired. They, they're claiming I did X and I haven't, you know, this, this kind of thing. So it's one of the first major, uh, well, I, I think it is the first. Academic firing, according to one uh, uh, historian as I mm. read that, that wrote about this, mm. it was the first. Okay, so this is this is academic freedom, free speech, the, all things happening right now again in Evansville, Indiana, and this, as you say, becomes national, international. Henry Wallace himself, um, in, in the New Republic, writes about the event. Yes. He talks about the hooligans in Evansville and laments the fact that he didn't give he no one heard his speech about turning the aircraft mm. turning the industry into like uh, a public a public industry for creating aircraft that isn't yes. a profit oriented in industry as a way to sort of uh stop war making machines basically so he laments the fact that all that we talk about now is red scare all we talk about is communists. We don't talk about any of these progressive platforms anymore. And one of the issues here, obviously, is that a uh, a professor is is stopped from speaking. You know, this is a, spe- a speech issue at this point, right? So yes. uh, the issue is that we're no longer talking about the things that we're trying to make, you know, to try to work and make a different world. We're arguing about these ideologies, right? The, the discussion has been completely, utterly Derailed. Right. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, yeah. Yes, of course. And uh, and and it and it worked mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. case. Mm-hmm. So, what did the AAUP find? They they looked and they censored the school for. Uh, this was unclear when I looked through. It's hard to find this stuff. Sure. 
it's hard to, it's it's like it's gone from all right. where you expect to find it mm. it's gone mm. <laughs> and uh but they were censored and then a couple of years later they had it back well when uh Lincoln Hale left i think yes. yeah, yeah they, well maybe that's what it yeah. was that they he was they censured able to, him he, yes, more, yes, not yes, the university I forgot that, yes. yeah yeah so he left to go to another I don't know where he went, but uh, he he left, and and then they got their their accreditation back. George Parker moves on to, to another university, yes. right? Berea in yes. Kentucky. Well, just by sheer luck, mm-hmm. I think he probably was having trouble finding work. Mm-hmm. But he worked there for the rest of his yes, life. Yes, yes. And Berea was was a agricultural version of the unions, mm-hmm. I suppose. Mm-hmm. When it came to helping poor people, it was uh, that part of that Appalachian. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's help these people sort of thing. And so I think they bought into that philosophy mm-hmm. that he had. They just didn't have the industry. Right. Well, there is one uh, one uh, period of, uh, I guess, one thing about the newspaper here that, again, you mentioned the sort of competing Republican-Democrat newspapers. So there's a Republican uh, newspaper, which is the Evansville Courier. The Democratic paper is the press. press. and But there's one series of articles that were written in the – Courier about communists and the union leadership, yes. right? Expose, I think. Yeah, and I have a series of uh, articles written by a woman, I forget her name now, Catherine Bell, maybe, or something like that. Yes. Um, again, no no charges were actually substantiated. She like named 40 ex people. No one was ever proven to be a communist, but the damage is done. Not only that, but then the congressman, Mitchell, Mitchell. saw a chance to really make hay out of it right. because he was going to be – in fact, he lost his election after that. Well, good. But, but uh, he wanted to he – was, he was trying to get some momentum for it. So he brought a congressional hearing. He was trying States. to get his own little McCarthy yes, yes, situation there before McCarthy had his – Are you or yeah. have you ever been a communist? Right. You know, I mean, though it's, it's exactly right. that. Yeah. So, so we think about McCarthyism. The, the country had lots of McCarthys. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I, do, I, do, I was impressed by the two questions asked. Are you – a communist, and do you believe in God? Yes, these are yeah. important for Americans, right? You, you, you're you're not a communist, and you believe in God to be an American. Well, you you destroy the debate, is what you do. There's no debate right. to it. It's just gotta answer those questions. Gotta answer those questions the right way. We're living in a country that's the finest place on earth, but some folks don't appreciate this land. You're listening to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our guest is historian Randy Mills, and our show is The Red Scare Next Door, about red-baiting and union-busting, often simply synonymous terms, in Evansville, Indiana, in the late 1940s. They're figuring out just how we gave our secrets all away, and Congress has appointed a committee, so they said, to find out who's American and who's a low-down red. I think I asked this enough already, but uh, to me, Russia doesn't seem a... Uh, a scary thing for the U.S. until the Cuban Missile Crisis, maybe. You know, I, I would I would counter that. The average American mm-hmm. who didn't understand global kinds of things, mm-hmm. you look at the Russians not leaving Eastern Europe. Uh, you've got uh, the Marshall, in Czechoslovakia. Yeah, you got the Marshall Plan, and they're about to take Italy. I mean, there's a lot going on. Sure, China's going to fall. Uh, Russia got the bomb. How in the hell did that happen? Mm -hmm. Uh, So you see those things that are driving that fear. So they're pretty easy to demonize. Now, I I guess you could make the argument, and I suspect it's a good argument, that the Russians are just being uh, imperialistic and not they're not being driven by ideology. I don't know if they ever were the leadership Mm -hmm. as much as they were just wanting the power and seeing 
you know, like any imperialistic yeah, there, yeah, I'm nations. Yeah, saying there's another country we we can name for that. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> right. So every all the, all the right. industrialized countries are doing that, right, right. and and that's the way they're doing it. Mm-hmm. But they're also probably have a lot of phobia because of their their own history. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're 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 a, a a group of people that that need to be to be respected and also understood and also. Uh, uh, they they can they can do aggressive things mm-hmm. that we may should mm-hmm. be aware of and do mm-hmm. something about. So I don't think we let them off the hook, but we don't let ourselves off the hook either. For mm-hmm. what we did, if you lived in England or someplace, looked at what we did, right. you could you could say a lot of the same things. But but I will say that it was easy to demonize them because they they were doing things that could be seen as threatening. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sure. Well, you know, as I think you said already, it's hard to take off your 2018 glasses yes. and say, what's so scary about Russia? Well, your Russia? 1950 glasses. Well, I sure. grew up during that time, and okay. you know, and they were the bad guys, and there was mm-hmm. movies about it, and yeah. then, of course they were all overdone. But if you look at the people who were progressive, uh, and you look at, at Truman and Adsonson and, and the Korean War, right. I mean, uh, they, and then you had China, uh, they had to deal with that, and mm-hmm. and that was real. And we can look back at hindsight and say all sorts of things. Right. But but you know, you, you you can only judge from what you have when sure. you're there. Sure, sure. That's in, fair. In, in fairness to that That's other fair. side. That's fair. Sure. Uh, and one of your articles you mentioned, and and this will be the last thing I think that we can uh, talk about. And I don't know if it fits anywhere in particular, or if I'll put it anywhere in particular. But I did want to ask you about the period. There's um, about the Red Scare in particular, about sort of a conservative reactionary response to a change in uh, culture, perhaps. Right. Uh, you mentioned uh, the permissiveness of parenting via the Doctor Spock books, right, and the fact that. Kinsey here at IU uh, puts out his 1948 book, uh, Sexuality in the Mail or something like that, uh, and um, and that this is a kind of waning of moral certainty, I think you say in the piece. Yes, so, yes. And this is part of the reaction, you know, against these things. Is uh, The world is a crazy place. <laughs> yes, yes. That really feeds that. Mm-hmm. If, if, what would have happened if that hadn't been going on? Mm-hmm. Um, I think... Um, I think we we get back to wrestling with who we are as a country, what what this country stands for in terms of opportunity of of redistributing the wealth if that needs to be done to create a, a more uh, even playing field, or do we go by that free market ideology of 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 that? Uh, and and the New Deal, the crisis of the New Deal. We were forced into a kind of a, a, a European system that we probably never would have went into right. because of the depression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what happens is, as time goes on and things get fixed and and the economy starts booming, um, we we go back some. Mm-hmm. And and I think the the Republicans were able to bring it. Uh, well, they wanted to, to, to go back to nineteen to the nineteen twenties, right. um, and. That that was the beginning of yeah. that, and and that other thing you talked about fit into it. So now you've got the fear of kind of social fears mm-hmm. of that might uh, be of attracted to evangelicals. We'd say today, but even back then, where evangelicals would have been probably in a great majority at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, all of that. And I, I suppose if you want to make an analogy to today, you would talk about globalism being mm-hmm. that kind of thing 
that that makes people afraid and want to turn in mm-hmm. and be exclusive. Mm. I, the last thing I would say yeah, about sure. this is it's amazing to me how all this has been forgotten. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. Evansville was the center of that battle. Oh, what can I? That's our show. We'll close with "Song of My Hands," performed by Barbara Dane off her album "I Hate the Capitalist System." I'm gonna sing you a song of my hand. I hear the sound. Robbie Lieberman reports this song was popular on the left, but that it was not sung by labor unions due to the prevailing anti-communist perspective of the time. Our thanks to Randy Mills, professor of history at Oakland City University and author of numerous articles and books on Indiana and regional history, including his most recent book, Summer Wind, A Soldier's Road from Indiana to Vietnam, co-authored with his wife, Roxanne. Next time on Interchange, we'll turn to Vermont to examine another chapter in the book of anti-communism in the U.S., Rick Winston joins us to discuss his new book, Red Scare in the Green Mountains. What do you know? It features a Wallace campaign event, local politicians using red-baiting tactics, and another professor gets fired for having a political opinion. Red Scare in the Green Mountains, on the next Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon edited today's program. Wes Martin is our executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. My two hands.